The Soul Winner, How to Lead Sinners to the Savior by Charles H. Spurgeon. Chapter 4, Living Faith. The next essential qualification for success in the work of the Lord is a vital one, a living faith. Remember how the Lord Jesus Christ couldn't do many mighty works in his own country because of the unbelief of the people? It is equally true that with some men, God can't do many mighty works because of their unbelief. If you will not believe, neither shall you be used of God. According to your faith, be it unto you, is one of the unalterable laws of his kingdom. Matthew 9.29 If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say to this mountain, Remove from here to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Matthew 17 But if the question has to be asked, Where is your faith? The mountains will not move for you, nor will even a poor sycamore tree be stirred from its place. You must have faith about your call to the ministry. You must believe without question that you really are chosen of God to be a minister of the gospel of Christ. If you firmly believe God has called you to preach the gospel, you will preach it with courage and confidence. You will go to work because you have a right to do it. However, if you have an idea that you are possibly nothing but an interloper, you will accomplish nothing of any account. You will only be a poor, limping, hesitant, half-apologetic preacher, and no one will care for your message. You better not begin to preach until you are quite sure God has called you to the work. A man once wrote to me, a man once wrote to ask me whether he should preach or not. When I don't know how to reply to someone, I try to give as wise an answer as I possibly can. Accordingly, this is what I wrote to this man. Dear friend, if the Lord has opened your mouth, the devil can't shut it. But if the devil has opened it, may the Lord shut it. Six months later, I met the man and he thanked me for my letter, which he said greatly encouraged him to go on preaching. How was that? I asked. You said, if the Lord has opened your mouth, the devil can't shut it. I nodded. Yes, I did, but I also added the other side of the question. Oh, that part didn't relate to me. We can always find advice to suit our own ideas, if we know how to interpret it. If you have genuine faith in your call to the ministry, you will be ready, with Luther, to preach the gospel even while standing between the great teeth of Leviathan's jaws, you must also believe the message you have to deliver is God's word. I'd rather you believed half a dozen truths intensely than a hundred without strength of conviction. If your hand isn't large enough to hold a great deal, hold firmly what you can. If it came to a match of push and shove, and we were all allowed to carry away as much gold as we could take from a heap, it might not be much of much use to have a big purse because in the scuffle, the one who closed his hand tightly on as much as he could conveniently hold and not let go would come off with the best.
Sometimes it might be best for us to imitate the boy in the ancient fable who put his hand into a narrow-necked jar, grasped as many nuts as he could hold, but couldn't get even one out of the jar. When he let half of them go, his hand came out easily. We must do the same, because we can't hold everything. It is quite impossible. Our hand isn't big enough. When we grasp anything, we must hold it fast and grip it tightly. Believe what you say you believe, or you will never persuade anybody else to believe it. If you adopt a style that says, I think this is a truth, and as a young man I beg you to kindly pay attention to what I am about to say, I am merely suggesting, and so on. If that is your mode of preaching, you'll be breeding doubters the easiest way possible. I would rather hear you say, young as I am, what I have to say comes from God, and God's word says so and so, and so and so. There it is, and you must believe what God says, or you will be lost. The people who hear you will say, that young fellow certainly believes what he is talking about. Very likely, some of them will be led to believe, too. God uses the faith of his ministers to breed faith in other people. Souls aren't saved by a minister who doubts, and the preaching of your own doubts and questions can never conceivably decide a soul for Christ. You must have great faith in the Word of God and in the power of that message to save people if you are to be winners of souls to those who hear it. You may have heard the story of the first-year student who came to me and said, I've been preaching now for some months, and I don't think I've had a single conversion. I asked, Do you expect the Lord is going to bless you and save souls every time you open your mouth? No, sir. Well then, I said, that's why you don't see souls saved. If you believed, the Lord would give the blessing. I'd caught him quite nicely, but many would have answered me just as he did. They apprehensively believe it is possible, by some strange mysterious method, that once in a hundred sermons God might win a quarter of a soul. They have hardly enough faith keep them standing upright in their boots, so how can they expect God to bless them? I like to go to the pulpit feeling I am going to deliver God's word in his name. It can't return to him, void, Isaiah 55. I have asked his blessing upon it. He is bound to give it. His purposes will be accomplished, whether my message is a savor of life unto life or of death unto death to those who hear it, to the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. Second Corinthians chapter 2. Now, if this is how you feel, what happens if souls are not saved? Special prayer meetings will be called to seek to know why the people don't come to Christ. You will schedule seeker meetings for those who are anxious to understand more. Along with this, you shall meet people displaying a joyful countenance because they see you are expecting a blessing. 
the same time, you will let them know you will be grievously disappointed unless the Lord gives you conversions. While this is how things should be, what do we see in many places? Nobody prays much about the matter. No meetings are called for crying to God for a blessing. And the minister never encourages the people to come and tell him about the work of grace in their souls. I tell you this, he has his reward. He gets what he asked for and receives what he expected. His master gives him his penny, but nothing else. The command is, open thy mouth wide and I will fill it, Psalm 81. Yet here we sit with closed lips, waiting for the blessing. Open your mouth with a full expectation, a firm belief, and according to your faith, so shall it be given to you. Matthew 9. That is the essential point. You must believe in God and in his gospel if you are to be a winner of souls. Some other things may be omitted, but when it comes to this matter of faith, it must never be. It is true that God doesn't always measure his mercy by our unbelief, for he has to think of other people as well as of us, but looking at the matter in a common sense way. It does seem that the most likely instrument to do the Lord's work is the man who expects God will use him and who goes forth to labor in the strength of that conviction. When success comes, he isn't surprised because he looked for it with expectation. He sowed living seed and he expected to reap a harvest from it. He cast his bread upon the waters and he intends to search and watch until he finds it again. Once more, if a man is to succeed in his mind and win many souls, he must be characterized by thorough earnestness. Don't we all know men who preach in such a lifeless manner that it's highly improbable anybody will ever be affected by what they say? I was present when a good man asked the Lord to bless the sermon he was about to deliver, to bring about the conversion of sinners, I don't wish to limit omnipotence, but I don't believe God could bless that sermon he preached to any sinner unless he made the hearer misunderstand what the minister said. It was one of those bright poker sermons, as I call them. You know how in some drawing rooms there are pokers kept for show to be looked at but never used. If you ever tried to poke the fire with them, you'd catch it from the lady of the house. These sermons are just like those pokers. They're polished up, bright, and cold. They seem as if they might have more in common with people in the stars, because they certainly have no connection with anyone in this world. What good comes from such discourses? No one can tell, but I feel sure there isn't enough power in them to kill a cockroach or a spider. Certainly there is no power in them to bring a dead soul to life. With some sermons, it's quite true that the more you think of them, the less you think of them. If any poor sinner goes to hear them with the hope of getting saved, you can only say that the minister is more likely to stand in the way of his going to heaven than to point him to the right road. You can't count on it that you can make men understand the truth if you really want to do so. 
But if you aren't absolutely in earnest, it isn't likely they will be. For instance, if a man knocked at my door in the middle of the night and I stuck my head out of the window to see what was the matter and he answered in a quite unconcerned way, there's a fire at the back part of your house. I'd entertain very little thought of any fire. Instead, I'd feel inclined to empty a jug of water over him. If I'm walking along and a man comes up to me and says in a cheerful tone of voice, Good afternoon, sir. Do you know that I'm starving? I haven't tasted food for ever so long. My reply would be something like, My good fellow, you seem quite at ease. I don't believe you lack for much, or you wouldn't be so unconcerned about it. Some men seem to preach in this fashion. My dear friends, this is Sunday, so here I am. I have spent time in my study all week, and now I hope you will listen to what I have to say to you. I don't know if there's anything in it that particularly concerns you. It might have some connection with the man in the moon, but I understand some of you are in danger of going to a certain place which I don't wish to mention. Let me just say that I hear it's not a nice place for even a temporary residence. I mainly preach to you that Jesus Christ did something or other, which in some way or other has something to do with salvation. And if you pay attention to what you do, and so on. It is possible that you will, and so on, and so on. In other words, this is the full summary of many a discourse. Nothing in that vein of talk can do anybody any good. After the man keeps on in that style for three quarters of an hour, he closes by saying, Now it's time to go home and he hopes the deacons will pay him for his services. That sort of thing won't do. We didn't come into the world to waste our own time or other people's in that way. I hope we were born for something better than to be mere bits of husk in the porridge, which are neither good nor harmful. Like the man I've described, just imagine God sending a man into the world to try to win souls who has such a stylistic tendency in the entire spirit of his life. Some ministers are constantly being talked about for doing nothing. They preach two sermons of an inferior sort on Sunday, say the effort almost wears them out. Along with this, they make short pastoral visitations, which amount to drinking a cup of tea and making small talk. All this is void of passionate agony for souls, there is no woe, woe on their hearts and lips showing grief, sorrow, or misery. It comes down to the fact that they lack focus and a true zeal in God's service. If the Lord sweeps such men away, if he cuts them down like cumberers, it will be no surprise. The Lord Jesus Christ wept over Jerusalem. And you will have to weep over sinners if they are to be saved through you. And when he was come near, Luke 19 says, he beheld the city and wept over it. You must be earnest. Put your whole soul into the work or else give it up. I'm sure you know some men who are too wise to be just simple believers. They've gained so much knowledge that they don't believe things which are plain and simple.
Their souls have been fed so daintily that they can't live on anything but exotic foods like Chinese birds, nest, caviar, and such luxuries. No milk fresh from a cow is ever good enough for them because they are far too refined to drink such a beverage. Everything they have must be unique and unrivaled. God doesn't bless these attractive spiritual aristocrats who dress like puppets and carry their character on their back. No, as soon as you see them, be ready to say they may do well enough as Lord so-and-so's servant, but they are not the men to do God's work. For God isn't likely to employ such grand gentlemen. When they select a text, they never explain its true meaning. Instead, they go round about to find something the Holy Spirit never intended to convey by it. When they get hold of one of their precious new thoughts, oh my, what a fuss they make over it. The reality is that such a man is like one who has found a stale herring. What a treat! It is so odoriferous. Now we shall hear of this stale herring for the next six months until somebody else finds another. What a loud voice they use to set up their presentation. Glory, glory, glory. Here is a new thought. And it doesn't stop there. A new book comes out about it, and all these great men go sniffing around it to prove what deep thinkers and wonderful men they are. God doesn't bless that kind of wisdom. This wisdom is not that which descends from above, but is earthly, natural, and diabolical. James 3.15 By simplicity of heart, I mean that a man clearly goes into the ministry for the glory of God, the winning of souls, and nothing else. Some men would like to win souls and glorify God if it could be done with suitable regard to their own interests. They would be delighted, oh yes, very pleased indeed, to extend the kingdom of Christ. If the kingdom of Christ would give full representation to their amazing powers, they'd go in for soul winning if it would persuade people to unharness the horses in order to step in and draw the carriage, carrying them through the street in triumph, just so people will think they must be somebody. You see, they must be known. They must be talked about. They must hear people say, what a splendid man that is. Of course, they give God the glory after they've sucked the juice out of it, but they must have the orange themselves first. Unfortunately, that sort of spirit is found even among ministers, and God can't endure it. He is not going to have a man's leftovers, because he will have all the glory or none at all. If a man seeks to serve himself, to get honor for himself, rather than seeking to serve God and honor him alone, the Lord Jehovah won't use that man. A man who is to be used by God must believe what he does is for the glory of God and have no other motive. Regrettably, when outsiders go to hear some preachers, all they remember is that they were great actors. The fact is, they should be a very different kind of man. One who, after someone has heard him preach, they don't think about how he looked or how he spoke, but about the solemn truths he spoke. Another man rolls out what he has to tell in such a fashion that those who listen to him say to one another, Don't you see that he lives by his preaching? It's his job, how he makes 
his living. I would rather hear it said, that man said something in his sermon that made many people think less of him and more of God. He voiced some distasteful sentiments and did nothing but drive at us with the word of the Lord all the while he preached. All he cared about was bringing us to repentance and faith in Christ. That is the kind of man whom the Lord delights to bless. I prefer to see men like those to whom I have said, Right now you're earning a good salary and are likely to rise to a position of influence in the world. If you give up your job and go to Bible college, you will very likely be a poor Baptist minister all your life. After I've said this, they've looked up and said, I'd sooner starve and win souls than spend my life in any other calling. Most of you reading this book are such people. You must never have an eye for the glory of God. And you you must never have an eye for the glory of God and the fat sheep for yourself. It must never be God's glory and your own honor and esteem among men. That won't do. Not even if you preach to please God and an attractive woman. It must be God's glory alone. Nothing less, nothing else, not even a good-looking woman. As the sea snail clings to the rock, so is such a woman to the minister. It won't do for him to even think of pleasing her. With true simplicity of heart, he must seek to please God, whether man and women are pleased or not. Lastly, there must be a complete surrender of yourself to God. What I mean by this is that from this time forward, you should wish to think God's thoughts and not your own thoughts. You should determine to preach nothing of your own invention, but only from God's word. To go even further, resolve not even to deliver that truth in your own way, but only in God's way. Suppose you read your sermons when you deliver your message. I know this isn't very likely, but if you did, your desire should be not to write anything except what is entirely according to the Lord's mind. When you get hold of a fine big word, ask yourself whether it's likely to be a spiritual blessing to your people. If you think it wouldn't be, leave it out. Then there's that grand bit of poetry that, even though you couldn't understand it, you felt you couldn't omit. But when asked whether it was likely to be instructive to the rank and file of your people, you were forced to reject it. Such gems found on a literary dust heap must be added into the crown of your sermon, only if you want to show the people how industrious you have been. However, if you desire to leave yourself entirely in God's hands, it is probable you will be led to make some very simple statement some banal remark, something with which everyone in the congregation is familiar. If you feel moved to put that into the sermon, by all means put it in, even if you have to leave out the big words, the poetry, and the gems. It may be that the Lord will bless that simple statement of the gospel to some poor sinner seeking the Savior. Yield yourself unreservedly to the mind and will of God in this way, and eventually, when you get out into the ministry, you'll be compelled to use a peculiar expression at times or to offer an odd prayer, which at the time may seem a bit strange even to you, but it will make 
sense to you afterwards when someone comes to tell you that he never understood the truth until you put it in such an unusual way. You'll be more receptive to this influence if you thoroughly prepare for your work in the pulpit by study and prayer. I urge you always to make proper preparation and to even write out in full what you think you ought to say. However, don't deliver it by memory like a pet parrot repeating what it has been taught. If you do that, you'll certainly not be open to guidance of the Spirit. I have no doubt you will sometimes feel there is a passage you must incorporate into your message. A fine piece by one of the British poets or a choice extract from some classic author. You'll no doubt read it to a college friend. And even though you don't ask him to praise it, it's only because you're sure he couldn't help but do so. You think that you have very seldom heard anything equal to one particular piece in it. And you are sure that Mr. Punchin or Dr. Parker couldn't have done any better. In fact, you're quite certain that when the people hear your sermon, they will be obligated to feel there's something in it. However, it may be that the Lord will consider it too good to be blessed because there is too much in it. Think of it like the host of men who were with Gideon. The Lord considered them too many. He couldn't give the Midianites into their hands or they would brag about themselves and at the same time against him by saying our own might has gained us the victory. When 22,000 of them had been sent away, the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. All of them had to be sent home except the 300 who lapped. Once he narrowed it down to this handful of men, the Lord said to Gideon, Arise and descend to the camp, for I have delivered it into thy hands. Judges 7. So the Lord says about some of your sermons, I can't do any good with them. They're too big. Consider that one you've prepared with the 14 sections. Leave seven of them out. Then perhaps the Lord will bless it. Someday it may happen. Just when you are in the middle of your homily, the Lord will bring a thought across your mind and you will say to yourself, Now, if I say this, that old deacon will make it uncomfortable for me. And there's a gentleman who just walked in who runs a school. He's an evaluator and will surely be displeased if I say this. Besides, those here include a remnant according to the election of grace, and the hyper-Calvinists up the gallery will give me one of those heavenly looks that are so full of meaning. I encourage you to feel ready to say anything God gives you to say, irrespective of all the consequences and regardless of what the hypers or their counterparts, lopers, or anybody else will think or do. One of the principal qualifications of a great artist's brush is its yielding of itself to him, so he can do what he likes with it. A harpist will love to play on one particular harp because he knows the instrument, and the instrument almost appears to know him. So when God puts his hand upon the very strings of your being, and every power within you seems to respond to the movements of his hand, you are an instrument he can use. It's not easy to keep yourself in this condition, to remain in such a sensitive state that you receive the impression the Holy Spirit desires to convey. 
and are instantly influenced by him. If there is a great ship out at sea and a tiny ripple moves across the waters, the great ship is not moved by it in the least. Even if a moderate wave comes, the vessel doesn't feel it. However, consider the unsinkable but ill-fated S.S. Great Eastern, which still sits still within the embrace of the deep. Just look over the bulwarks and out at the sea. See those corks playing on the surface of the water down there? If even a fly drops into the water, they feel the motion and dance upon the tiny wave. May you be as mobile beneath the power of God as the cork is on the surface of the sea. I am sure this self-surrender is one of the essential qualifications for a preacher who is to be a winner of souls. Something must be said if you are to be the means of saving that man in the corner. And woe to you if you aren't ready to say it. Woe to you if you are afraid to say it. Woe to you if you are ashamed to say it. Woe to you if you don't care to say it, because somebody up in the gallery might complain that you are too earnest, too enthusiastic, or too zealous. These seven things are the qualifications Godward, which I think would come to mind if you try to put yourself into the position of the Most High, and considered what you would wish to have in those whom you employed in the winning of souls. May God give all of us these qualifications for Christ's sake.